Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hugh Jackson is back in the news, and we're going to discuss why that is and do some reminiscing about his time with the Browns today on the Orange Brown Talk podcast. I'm Scott Patsko, and I'm joined by Mary Kay Cabot. How are you doing, Mary Kay? I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing? Doing good. We're both in our basements ready to go. <laughs> so <laughs> Hugh uh, was on local radio uh, recently, and he talked about a lot of the things that he talked about after he was fired, um, the, you know how he felt when uh, he realized he wasn't going to be coaching a team on the rise. Uh, He talked about Baker, talked about, uh, you know, getting fired. But one of the bits of news, I guess, that came out of it is that he's writing a book and it's not coming out till 2021, which, wow, that's a, that's a long lead in time to promote your book, but still uh, that's one thing that I kind of took away from it. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about Hugh and his time with the Browns and what we remember and, and maybe a little later, we'll get into what we think might be in that book. Uh, but first thing I wanted to ask you about is, what is your lasting memory of Hugh Jackson's tenure with the Browns? Now that we're, we got a little bit of distance between him being uh, let go, what, what's your lasting memory? I think more so than anything, and the, the thing that, that stands out to me uh, was the fact that he was expected to try to win games here with Cody Kessler and Deshaun Kaiser. And, you know, they just didn't have a whole lot of talent on those rosters. It was a, uh, it was a tough hand that, that he was dealt. He had to guide the team through a very difficult time. And, you know, any coach, I mean, even Kyle Shanahan, who just got an enormous extension, you know, even he found it difficult to win when he didn't have a really good quarterback. So I think that's the number one thing that stands out is uh, they supplied him with Cody, uh, with Deshaun, and I, he was fighting for, you know, guys like, uh, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo and, uh, you know, A.J. McCarron even at one point and other quarterbacks along the way that he really wanted. He wanted to, to sign Colin Kaepernick at one point. And I remember writing about, about that back then. That's not news uh, that he wanted to do that. Uh, so there were a lot of different guys that he wanted to try to win games with and didn't have an opportunity to, to try those guys. Yeah, the Kaepernick thing also, I saw that making the rounds this week. And you're right, we, uh, we had touched on that before. I think A.J. McCarron, wow, there's a name I hadn't thought about in a while and that whole ordeal <laughs> with the, uh, did they do, did they not submit paperwork on purpose or, or you know, did they try to sabotage that? Um, but I, I'll always remember, of course, Demarius Randall trying to hand him the ball when he was on the sideline with the Bengals after the turnover. Um, but that really wasn't 
when he was with the Browns. What I remember from him and his time here is because I came in at the same year he did. My first year on the Browns beat was 2016. So being in that locker room the first two years when they were going through one in 31 mm-hmm. and not, there was never a sense of this is horrible. This is awful. And everybody just wanted to get out. Of, it was, it was more of a calm. I think it was more, we understand that we're a team that's building and yes, we're losing, but we're trying to get better. That all changed in 2018. Uh, especially when Baker kind of took over his role, the the mood and the attitude in that locker room really switched. But I thought those first two years, I, it felt like Hugh did a good job of keeping everybody focused, even though he says now that he that he didn't really understand the plan at the beginning that they were going to tear it down to the studs. But after that all happened and he was presented with those teams, I thought that he did a good job keeping things together for those first two years. Yeah, I mean, he had no choice. He he had to. He had to be sort of the face of the franchise. He had to be the, the face of uh, what was a time of acquiring draft capital and building up uh, resources so that they could purchase free agents and things like that. So uh, he, he had to be the front man for all of that. Uh, but he was taken aback by that. And I, you know, I remember uh, the day that he was fired, like it was the day after that he was fired that I actually had an opportunity to go to his house. And I, I sat there uh, at his desk in his office at his house. His wife, Michelle, was there and I had an opportunity uh, to kind of go over some things with them. Some of the things that we talked about were on the record. Some of the things that we talked about were a little bit off the record. And, um, and he was, you know, he was very, very devastated about how this all went down because that last year, you know, he really thought that that was going to be an opportunity for him uh, to have a chance to, you know, to maybe call the plays, to finally have a good quarterback. So they finally get a quarterback and they take play calling away from him. And, mm-hmm. and he now says that that is his biggest regret, that he never should have given up play calling. But all along the way, you could see that it was just, you know, that, that Sashi and Hugh mismatched. Sashi and John Dorsey mismatched. Uh, and Hugh and John Dorsey mismatched. Hugh and Todd Haley big mismatch. And, you know, there was just never a time when it was set up uh, for him to, you know, to kind of have anything the way he would normally want to have it. Do you think, do you think he, he got a raw deal? Do you think that, I, I look at it this way, he, he made it through those first two seasons and he got the third year. And, and I know that, that, he doesn't like the fact that they took the offense away from him. And that's understandable because, you know, he was an offensive coordinator and you look at the fact that had a huge deal with him getting hired in the first place. But uh, from the comments that he's made uh, and not being able to run his offense, everybody, every coach wants players, but I think the, the, the critics of Hugh Jackson will say, well, you're the head coach and you have this great offense and you have this great offense of mine. You should have done more with it in, in 2017. Than, than you did because obviously they took a step back they went winless um but do you do you believe that he got a raw deal as far as as the players that he had that's, I mean that's what? yeah I I actually I actually kind of do I actually kind of feel like it was uh it, it was just ill-fated from the start it was mm-hmm. absolutely ill-fated from the start he wasn't really the choice of Sashi Brown just 
start with, okay? That's just a bad place to start. If you are not the choice of the guy picking the players and the guy that's in charge, uh, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to be swimming upstream the entire time. Those guys were never a match. They were never a fit. A lot of this stuff is going to come out in the book, but they just battled each other and battled and battled and battled each other the whole entire way through. He would, he would be, you know, he would be on one side of Jimmy Haslam. Sashi would be on the other side and would both be, uh, you know, kind of stating their case, but they were just never, they were never together. They were never together in all of that. And, um, and it just kind of kept going on and on and on like that. And if they knew that they, you know, you know, then you go ahead and you bring in John Dorsey. And the minute they bring in John Dorsey, the writing is on the wall that this isn't, is not going to work out for Hugh Jackson. I mean, that, that just was not a fit either. It wasn't a fit for anybody. I mean, you could look at that. You know, they talk a lot about alignment now. You could look at, uh, you know, Paul DePodesta, John Dorsey, Hugh Jackson, Todd Haley, Freddie Kitchens and just see that that was going to be a disaster. I mean, that was going to be a disaster. And, and it really was. But, but he had to be happy that they had a quote-unquote football guy in John Dorsey as opposed to Sashi Brown at that point. I, have to, I, would, I would tend to believe that he maybe looked at that situation as being more comfortable. But at the same time, you have a GM coming in who had nothing to do with you being hired in the first place, and that's always got to leave you a little bit uh, uncertain about your future. I, I look at it now and uh, take Hugh out of the equation. And I think we've even talked about this, you know, what, what they have now in the front office and the head coach seems like what they had in 2016 with just a coach that aligns better with that thinking, you know, it's basically mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the Sashi isn't here, I know, but it's, it's kind of that same, same mold in the front office, but now you have the coach that works. You know? Yeah. Basically that that's, you know, that's what they did. They just kind of turned back the clock and again, like you said, without Sashi, kind of went, they went with the plan uh, that Paul D. Podesta, now he, you know, he is the chief strategy officer and he tried to get this sort of plan rolling back then, okay? Uh, and it didn't work out. It didn't work out because you have to have the right people together to make that work. So now they really are trying that sort of all over again uh, with people that are not going to clash, with people that are not going to butt heads. And yes, Hugh Jackson did think, hey, I finally have a football guy in place here and this is going to work out. But I don't think John Dorsey ever intended to keep Hugh Jackson long term. If, if you did, I don't think that you would have taken play calling away from him. I don't think you would have brought Todd Haley in. I mean, that was, you know, that was just a combustible situation right, right from the start, obviously. And yeah. we saw how that played out on hard knocks. I mean, that, that was a bad scene. It really was. I am looking forward to reading about some of that stuff because, uh, you know, you could just tell that, that, you know, Freddie, Todd, and, you know, some other people were kind of aligned against Hugh. And I think he tried to, he really took a step back and tried to sort of, you know, stay out of the play calling, stay out of the Baker, stay out of Baker May's way. And he just kind of handed it over and said, all right, you guys, you know, let's, let's see what you got. And, you know, that kind of blew up in his face, too. I, I was surprised, and, and you mentioned your interview that you did with him. He also uh, went on first take. Uh, I believe it was first take. He went on ESPN, I know that, um, and, and talked. And, and it didn't, he didn't come off well after that. Um, I, I was surprised that he did so much talking after he was fired. It seemed like just somebody kind of just swinging, trying to connect and, and 
you know, clear his name in a way. Um, a lot of coaches, they get fired and they kind of, you know, go off the grid for a while and, and maybe don't do this. Uh, I, I was surprised. Were you surprised that he, he did the interview with you, that he was that open to that? I, I was a little surprised. I was, I was a little bit surprised about that. Uh, but I, I think that throughout some of my coverage during those years, I think, you know, I was trying to write things like, hey, it's, it's okay uh, to try to acquire uh, assets. It's okay to try to trade for draft picks. It's perfectly okay uh, to gather all of this cap space. Those things are all good. But then you have to marry that up with really good talent evaluation and you have to pick really good players and add good players onto the football team and I was of the mind that uh, that there was you know a little bit of a missing element I mean Andrew Barry was on the staff back then but he was very young he was very new and I really thought that there should have been a uh, someone right under Sashi that would have been more the you know not John Dorsey because I don't think that would have worked but more of a you know a traditional old older school uh, you know, just scout that, that could have helped pick the players. And I think they would have made fewer mistakes during those years. Well, like I said, I came in with Hugh. So my, uh, my being up close and, and personal with Browns coaches and quarterbacks started there. You've obviously been on this uh, beat for a long, much longer time than me. And a lot of quarterbacks, a lot of coaches to go through. How did the relationship between Baker and Hugh compare to others? Because I mean, obviously, we know how things blew up after after Hugh left, you know, and and with with Baker calling him out and, and all that. Uh, but when they were were both in the building, um, I mean, it didn't seem that way. But after the fact, maybe we found things out. Like Hughes mentioned, how he's never been attacked the way Baker attacked him. And again, that's I think maybe alludes more to after the fact. But I mean, did did their relationship stack up to to others that you saw, or did you think there were problems? Well, no, what happened was basically there was a very, very tight-knit uh, triumvirate of uh, it was Todd Haley and, and Freddie Kitchens were, were very close. I mean, Freddie Kitchens uh, came along as part of the package deal with Todd Haley. And, uh, you know, and then Ryan Lindley came in to the picture as well. And then there was Drew Stanton, who was very, very close to Freddie and Todd Haley and Baker. So those guys were all kind of aligned in a little bit of a click if you will there was a little bit of a you know thing going on there and and he was on the outs he, he was not part of that and I don't know what was said what was brought up I mean you you saw the very strong things that Baker Mayfield said to Hugh Jackson and about Hugh Jackson and to this day that those are some of the things that I would like to to read about in the book what what was he talking about and I got the impression that Hugh doesn't really know quite exactly what Baker was talking about. I think he tried to uh, take a step back and just kind of let those guys handle Baker and, and let him coach him. He was going to let Todd call the place. He was going to try to be more of the CEO coach. And somehow uh, that, that group turned on him and really turned on him to the point where Baker basically, as we came to find out, thought that he was a horrible person. And I think that's one of those things that still remains puzzling, a big mystery to Hugh to this day. And that is, you know, what, what did I do to make you feel that way? And it, it would be interesting to find out, you know, what, you know, what all went down there because yeah. he, you know, he, he didn't really 
have a whole lot of dealings with Baker Mayfield one-on-one. He, he let those guys handle that. Yeah, let's talk about the book because I think you're right. I think the thing that could make this book really, really interesting is how much actual dialogue Hugh Jackson includes in it. You know, if you just say, if you're just writing about something that happened, you know, I was misled about uh, the direction of the franchise. But if you actually have the conversation or at least parts of the conversation explain, you know, how it was that you came to be misled or even with, with Baker, you know, what, what kind of, what was said in interactions and things like that. I think that goes a long way towards uh, making you a little more credible. It's like anything. It's like, what well, we write a story, you know, we have quotes to, to back up what we're talking about. It's, it's going to come off a lot better. Um, one of the things I want to read, uh, I guess, uh, is about the conversations with the quarterbacks that they passed up. You know, Hughes going on, on record saying that he loved, he loved everybody. You know, he loved Wentz. He loved Deshaun Watson, obviously Patrick Mahomes and, and all these guys that they could have gotten. Um, what were the conversations like when he found out that, no, actually, we're not going to take these guys. We're going to trade this pick and we're going to trade down here and we're going to, we're going to put off quarterback for a couple of years. That's, that's probably the top of my list of things I want to know about. Yeah. And you know what? And, and I know that people, some people think that some of that stuff is completely revisionist history. Um, but, you know, I, I actually, I, I've heard him say, and I've had conversations with him uh, telling me that he really did like Carson Wentz that year. Now everybody thought that he wanted uh, Jared Goff. And, you know, there's still some debate about that. Even his, one of his best friends in the business and in life, Michael Silver says, no way. He wanted Jared Goff 100% over, over Carson Wentz. So, Uh, There's still, you know, he's going to need to explain that in the book. I think that's one chapter that that people would like to read about. Uh, But it was my understanding that he really did like Carson Wentz a lot. Um, And, and, you know, and some of those other guys. Now, when it came to the 2017 draft, he really did want Miles Garrett number one overall. And it's my understanding that he felt that Sashi and Paul DePodesta really had eyes from a quarterback standpoint, only for Mitchell Trubisky. I mean, they would have seriously considered taking Mitchell Trubisky at number one overall. And Hugh and Greg Williams uh, agreed with him. They really wanted Miles Garrett there. So I don't think he would come out and say that he wanted Patrick Mahomes at number one overall. Right. He liked Patrick Mahomes. And he liked Deshaun Watson a lot. He liked those guys a lot. And I think he would have liked to have them, you know, maybe trade up, not let the Chiefs grab Patrick, take him somewhere. Um, but he did, he did like those guys. I, kinda, I think it was just kind of ma- a matter of where, uh, because we know that, um, you know, that he, uh, when it came to the, the second, their second pick in the first round of that draft, wanted uh Malik Jefferson so um you know so that that one we're not really sure how that would have worked out but I you know I think if 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 Sashi and I think that's in part too because he knew uh, once again that Sashi only had eyes for Mitchell Trubisky he wasn't going to draft Patrick Mahomes he wasn't going to draft Deshaun Watson there they liked Mitchell and that was it it's my understanding. So these are some of the things that I think will be very interesting to go back and revisit. Uh, but, it, you know, the, the thing that stands out to me is just that constant fight for, you know, please get me a quarterback, you know, yeah. any quarterback, get me something, you know, well, they, got I mean, him was- Sean, they got him to Sean Kaiser. 
<laughs> that's and what they Sean got. Biden, right. I mean, he, he, I mean, think about the, you know, the fact, you know, trying to win with two, you know, unproven rookies. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to do in this league when you are also trying to rebuild the team. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, nobody was talking about anybody other than Trubisky uh, alongside Garrett for that number one pick. I think what it probably comes down to is that second pick, you know, do you trade up uh, or, you know, if Mahomes is there, maybe, you know, do they take them, you know, or obviously Watson uh, was a missed opportunity. So you end up with Kaiser and then you end up with Owen 16, you know, that's the way it happened. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, another thing I want to read about is hard knocks and what that experience was like. And I'm, that, that scene in the, in the team, in the coaches meeting that is now famous with uh, taught where, where uh, Freddie Kitchens is talking about players taking time off and, and rehabilitating and all that, that couldn't have been the only instance of something like that, that cameras caught uh, that, that, that clashing of ideas between the coaches. Um, I'm just curious of what, what us, what else from that experience he takes away because there had to be things that were left on the cutting room floor that maybe he, he was worried about and did he see that as a detriment as some sort of uh, thing that, that held him back from from coaching the rest of the season because here the Haslam's weren't in the room but they obviously saw that and so then they get more of a sense of what's going on in their coaching ranks and along with all the fans and the rest of the league sees that um, I don't know that's, that seemed like a big hit to me to him when when that episode came out. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, by that point, he knew that there was a tremendous divide. He knew that it was Todd Haley, Freddie Kitchens, uh, Drew Stanton, to, to some degree, uh, Baker Mayfield over there, and that, that he was over here. And that John Dorsey was with those guys, because John had a hand in helping uh, to, to hire Todd Haley. So by that time, the writing was already on the wall for Hugh Jackson. He knew what was up. He knew that he shouldn't have given up play calling. He knew that those guys were, if you will, conspiring against him in some ways and that this uh, had the potential uh, to get ugly. And I, I think by then he really knew that. And it, it came out on camera. And you know what? A lot of times when you're fighting and scrapping and clawing to keep your head above water and you know uh, that it's kind of falling apart, uh, you know, maybe not, not things don't always come out of your mouth the way that you normally would want them to. You're not going to say the right thing in every situation. No matter what you say, everybody's going to hold it against you. When you go one and 31 and when you don't win, when you're in that position, put in a position to lose that much football, you know, you, you just don't have any leverage with the fans. You know what I mean? Like yeah. everything that comes out of your mouth, you're going to get slammed for that. So he just, it was in a no win was in a no-win situation whatsoever. And, uh, and he's had to, I think, keep, you know, keep everything uh, you know, under wraps because you know, when you're still getting paid by a football team, you can't, you, know, you, know, you, you want to get that paycheck. You, know? you want to take your paycheck and go to the bank and deposit it and, not, <laughs> and you want your money. So, yeah. uh, you know, so people wonder why is he waiting to write this book? Uh, you know, that's why you wait. I mean, you have to wait until the gag order is off, basically. And um, anyways, it was, uh, it, it was a difficult and, and stressful time because once again, you know, the Browns were trying to, uh, they had a mission and they were, they, they were, they were going to do 
something different than a lot of other teams had ever done in a very analytic kind of a way. Now, I whether or not you want to call that a teardown, I don't call it a teardown. I think it was trying to build up. I think they were trying to build up draft picks and money. In my opinion, that's what they were trying to do. I don't think they were trying to screw up all the draft picks. I don't think that at all. No. I think they just, at that time, were incapable of drafting the right players. Yeah, you mentioned uh, saying the wrong thing. Uh, can you imagine, I mean, being in that position and not just losing week after week, but having to, to talk about it five days a week? You know, it's, it always fascinates me how much time professional coaches, not just NFL, spend talking to us about what they do. You know, CEOs and, and PR people at major corporations don't do that, but we get that from coaches and being the spokesperson for a, a sinking ship like that, um, I wouldn't want to go through that. <laughs> and uh, he obviously didn't come through it unscathed. He had the, obviously the famous jump in the lake uh, uh, comment, but you know, it's, that's a tough job and, and it's tough to have to do that and explain yourself every day. So. Yeah, and you know what? I, I think uh, in the rear view mirror, when Freddie came along, and coached a really, really talented roster, like an incredibly talented roster, to a 6-10 and 10 season, and it was so dysfunctional. And he said so many dumb things up there uh, in the front of the room and did so many dumb things. Uh, you know, then I think, you know, maybe people may have, maybe some people may have looked back on, on Hughes' tenure and thought, okay, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we get it a little bit more than we did. Uh, you know, I think it would have been interesting to see what he could have done if he had called the plays with Baker Mayfield and Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry and Nick Chubb, because he did go eight and eight at one other time in his life with the Raiders. So, and he was, a, you know, he was assistant coach of the year one year. He didn't all of a sudden come to Cleveland and become a really bad football coach. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I do think in a lot of ways, uh, the deck was completely stacked against him and he had to answer for a very difficult period in Brown's history. Well, you can see that about a lot of coaches that have come through here. That's, that's for sure. All right. We're going to take a break here for a moment and tell you a little bit about football outsider and we'll be back in a minute. Hey, it's Scott again. I want to tell you about Football Insider. It's a way for you to get text messages every day from Mary Kay Cabot, Dan Labby, and myself with the inside scoop and analysis on the Browns. You get to hear what we're hearing, and you get breaking news before it even goes up on cleveland.com. Part of the deal is our Football Insider newsletter, which comes out every morning. It's sent via text to all the subscribers, and it includes a piece of content that you're not going to find on cleveland.com. It could be our take on something. It could be a video or a stat breakdown. But it's something that doesn't go on the website. It's only there for you. You can also text us directly. It's a great way to kind of cut through the social media cloud and, and avoid the trolls and get your questions directly to us. And it's the only way to get your questions on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. So that alone should probably make you want to sign up. You can get a 14-day free trial. You can cancel any time. All it takes is one text to get started. But you won't want to cancel. We've already had hundreds of subscribers join us over the last year. And they all seem to love it. And they've stayed with us. It's only $3.99 a month, which is less than $0.14 cents a day, and you can take part in special events that we have. We've had Zoom calls uh, around the draft. We've also broke down Baker Mayfield recently via Zoom call. 
with a lot of our subscribers. So how do you join? It's pretty simple. You can go to cleveland.com slash browns and click on the box along the right side of the page. Or better yet, you can just text 216-208-3965 to get going. Again, that's 216-208-3965 to become a football insider. All right, let's uh, let's try to wrap up our, our Hugh conversation here by talking about his future. He is not back in the league yet. We all know he went to the Bengals after the Browns let him go. Um, but he's a free agent. Do you think Hugh Jackson gets back into coaching? Or better yet, is he a head coach again in this league? He's been a head coach twice. You know, it's really tough to, to become a head coach when you have the kind of track record that he had in Cleveland. That would be very, very difficult. And I think that's one of the major reasons why uh, the Bengals did not hire him as head coach. When he went down there, uh, he did that for a reason. He really thought uh, that he was going to have an opportunity to take over that job. And I'm sure that he'll probably write about that uh, in the book. And I think that uh, that he was very hurt by that, that, uh, that he got passed over for that job in part because, you know, he took the arrows for, for what happened uh, with that period in, in, uh, in Brown's history. And, you know, people faulted him for taking that job. Why would you fault somebody for taking another job? Yeah. I thought that was weird job, from Baker right? to criticize. Right? Yeah. Why would anybody criticize a human being for taking another job after they get fired that could keep them in the NFL. Because I mean, look at him now, he's not in the NFL and there are plenty of coaches that are no longer in the NFL after they lose jobs. Rob Chazinski, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't think anybody should have ever faulted him for that. Uh, I do think he will get back into the league in some capacity or in, he'll get back into coaching in some capacity when it's right. And um, you know, if maybe Marvin Lewis will get back into the league. I mean, there, there, is a lot of talk right now about minority coaches and there just aren't many of them. There are four minority coaches uh, in the NFL. That's not enough. I mean, that's just not representative of, of the league of what goes on in the league of what should go on in the league and what goes on in this country. It's just, it's not enough Two GMs that are African-American and four coaches. So, uh, you know, if, if some of his, you know, friends, including like a Marvin Lewis gets back in, I could see him coming back in as an offensive coordinator and there I don't know if he'll ever get another chance as a head coach because of what happened here in Cleveland uh but you know it's just it's unfortunate the way that it all happened that's yeah I think it'd be a hard sell to bring him in as a head coach somewhere in the NFL um and I'm wondering if you know if this book does come out and say it has a lot of revealing things in it how would a how would a, an owner feel or a GM feel about hiring somebody who you know, who wants to kind of air the dirty laundry, so to speak, when they're gone. I, I don't know. We'll have to see what, what the book uh, looks like when it comes out. But I, I do think you're right. It, it, having a friend, having somebody you know who you've maybe worked with before would be a big step in, in getting him back in the door. And it'll probably be a coordinator or position coach job. I, you know, I guess it depends on if he really wants to do that or if he really wants to to be a head coach. Maybe that's something he, he writes about in his book. You know, I, but I hiring hiring Hugh Jackson I just wherever he would would be hired as a head coach there would be some sort of outcry from fans which is which is silly because it's not like he ever did anything here that was uh particularly bad he just lost a lot of games you know yeah and that's the name of the game obviously and his name is still on that 
one and 31 record. His name is on 0 and 16. And that is a hard, hard thing to overcome. I think in terms of head coaching, uh, I could see more so him coaching in college. Uh, I, I think that he will be a coordinator again in the NFL. And again, he's got a lot of friends in the league. Yeah. I mean, he's got, uh, you know, Mike Zimmer is a friend, Vance Joseph, Marvin Lewis. Uh, he's got a lot of guys that, you know, he, that he's coached with or under that, that, you know, that see the value in him on, you know, on their staff. So I think he will get back into the NFL. I don't know that anybody ever will ever give him another head coaching job again in the NFL. We'll have to see about that. Well, clearly calling plays is a, is a, is a big deal for him. So I'm guessing coordinator job somewhere. So, all right, let's take a, ta a stab at uh, uh, the title of this book. You know, it's going to need a title. We don't know if it's, I mean, I'm guessing it's probably going to be about his life. Um, you know, there's more to Hugh Jackson than just coaching the Cleveland Browns, obviously, but maybe it's just about his experience here. So if that's the case, any ideas on what you might call it? I, I have a couple. I, yeah, I think I would call it Hugh's here, baby. <laughs> there you go. That was one of the things that he first said when he walked through the door is that Hugh's here, baby. And I'll never forget when he walked through that door because, I mean, he was just on top of the world. He really thought that he had all the resources and everything that he needed uh, to turn the Cleveland Browns around. So many coaches walk through the door and think that they are going to be the ones that are going to turn this team around and, you know, just get, have a parade in their honor because they did it. And, mm -hmm. and he walked through that. He just burst through the doors yeah. thinking that that was going to happen for him. And it just couldn't have gone any worse. That's a good one. I, I, the first one I wrote down, and this is probably, I could see Doug Maurice, our, our colleague here, who was not, not necessarily a Hugh fan uh, coming up with this one, but uh, it was Sashi's fault would be probably the first, the first thing Doug would, <laughs> that Doug would throw out yeah, there. Um, for sure. I was sadly misled. I think that's kind of a theme with his uh, whole experience with the Browns, but the one I like the most is come on in the water's fine, which I think <laughs> works even if you go back all the way to, you know, his youth and just talk about his, his whole experience getting into football and his career. Um, you know, obviously there's the, the, the nod to the jump in the lake, but uh, I get the sense that he's probably in a better place than we think he is after going through all that. At least that's the way he comes off to me. So. Well, I, I think that last year, and with what happened again with Freddie, with that roster, with a roster that never should have gone six and 10, it somehow, I think, uh, you know, it, it sort of took a little bit of the edge off of the previous couple of years. So, yeah. you know, I think it helped him a little bit. <laughs> All right. Who knew we'd be talking about Hugh Jackson on June 16th in 2020, but, but we did it. Um, look forward to this book coming out uh, again. It's not supposed to come out till next year. So, you know, we got plenty of time to, to get ready for that. That'll do it for the Orange Brown Talk podcast today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with another round. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about yet. Again, it's, it's, it's the middle of June, people. We've got we to gotta struggle to come up with some topics here, but we'll do it. Uh, so for Mary Kay, I'm Scott. We'll talk to you next time.